0: It's a pleasure to be with you here this morning. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors, and I've been a pastor here for a few years, but I've been a part of this church for almost 12 years now, and it's it's great to continue to be here. I'm excited for the changes that are happening at South Shores Church. Um, I've brought four, my wife and I have brought four children into life at this church, and uh, you truly are our family, so thank you for being willing to hear uh, the words that I have this morning and what uh, God has been teaching me this week. You know, speaking of my kids, I have four of them, and the oldest is only five and a half. And so sometimes when I tell people that, they're a little surprised at the uh, uh, rapid rate of children in the Zellner household. Uh, But we are... Truly enjoying them and having a good time, and our two-month-old Shiloh is really uh, just a little gem, and so you'll have to meet her. But when my parents who live up near San Luis Obispo, because of all these kids, they're uh, magnetically drawn down to come visit us about once every month. And when they're coming, the kids are excited, incredibly excited to see their Nana and their Papa, but they're also very excited for something else, and that's something that Nana always brings without fail, and that's uh, Nana Cookies. The first thing that Hutch, my oldest son, and Oaks, my second oldest, will ask is, Do you have Nana cookies for us? I mean, they can't even get inside the house before they have their, the, the kids have their hands out looking to receive those gifts. And sure enough, she always does. Now, a Nana cookie, if you're unfamiliar with what they are, it's just a chocolate chip cookie that my mom has uh, been making for my entire life. Growing up, we always had the, the Tupperware and the snack drawer filled with them. And if that ran out, we always had multiple gallon freezer bags in the freezer, in the garage that we could go to to refresh the supply. And if they taste good, uh, you know, at room temperature, they taste just as good, if not better, frozen. I, I'll just tell you that little bit of information. About every day of my life growing up, I had three to four of these cookies. It was part of my uh, FDA allotment of calories and nutrition that I had to get each day. But when my parents come down now and our kids ask for them, they get one. (laughs) Because we're good parents, we love our kids, we know that that's too much sugar, that you can't have dessert every day and, and stuff and excuses like that. But when the kids go to sleep at night, Once they've stopped coming out, asking for water and all that, when we know that they're asleep, my wife and I proceed to sneak the rest of the cookies into our uh, mouths and stomachs because we just can't help ourselves. We're in the third week of the series Sweeter Than Honey, which really I think is just sort of a... Hebrew saying for yummier than Nana's cookies, and uh, the entire psalm of Psalm 119, in its own poetic way, is circling round and around, coming back to this idea that God's word is this precious jewel. It is rich. It is wonderful. And so we're trying to kind of hop through the psalm and follow these threads that come through of these different benefits of God's word so that we will find that it is so good that it is worth sneaking the rest of the bag anytime we can. Well, week one was the idea that God's word brings freedom in the place of slavery. Last week, we looked at the benefit that God's word brings light and understanding in a world that is dark and confusing. We've compared it to honey. Pastor Ty has compared it to ice cream, and now me, cookies quickly devoured. But the psalm upholds that God's word is richer still, God's word is sweeter still, and so our delight should be greater still. But what happens when it isn't? I have to imagine there's quite a few out here that can relate to this that might wonder, Pastor, I don't I don't actually see the Bible as sweeter than honey. It's, it's no bowl of ice cream to me. You've been talking about these Nana cookies. I've never had them. But right now, between God's word and a bag of those, I'm a little more tempted to the cookies. Uh, there's, a, there's a voice inside us that, uh, that we, we, we hush and we don't let it say it out loud during uh, Sunday morning services. But we know it's true throughout the rest of the week. We'll even say it to ourselves. I don't like reading the Bible. <gasps> And then we wonder, what do we do with this? I think part of the problem is that we just we don't see the Bible as something sweeter than honey. It's, it's not honey. It's more, like a, it's more like a vegetable. We see the Bible as Brussels sprouts. Uh, we, we know that we're told it's good for us. Eventually, we're going to have them. Um, we just don't like it, and we don't want it. And if, if we have to, what, what's the size again I have to make it on my plate? You know, how much greens? Because we need to feel healthy. But the Bible comes back to us and it says to us, it confronts us, that it is sweet like honey. But we just don't see it. Why? And the problem is not with God's word, I assure you. The problem is with us. It's with what the Bible calls sin. Sin obscures our ability to taste and to enjoy God's word. For those of you here this morning who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have not placed your life into the hands of his, sin obscures the taste of God's word by bringing death to your life. From the time of the first people, Adam and Eve, God has described the punishment of his sin, of of law-breaking, as death. Paul explains it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The world is a walking and talking dead. Following its own path of its own desires and death. It's rejecting the good news of Jesus and holding on, clutching its own sin. And for those who are dead... God's word, honey, is it's not sweet at all. But what about for the believer? For those who are in Christ, it should be very different. And yet sin still obscures the taste of God's word because it brings death to our joy. I don't know when's the last time that you were sick with a cold or like me two times in the past three months. I've had a sinus infection. And it just, uh, the the congestion and the pressure and the plugged nose and you go to eat food and food just doesn't taste like food. The sweet things don't taste like sweet things. Nothing tastes as it is. Everything's just a little bit off and it sort of takes away that joy of eating. Well, the problem's not with the food. It's not with the, the honey or the sweet things that you're trying to eat. The problem's with you. You're sick. Well, in the same way, our sin, it congests us and it robs us of the joy of God's word. Our sinful desires, our old ways, our seeking the the things around us, and it leaves us thinking sometimes that the Bible's boring. Or maybe it has nothing really to say to me today in our time and culture, or maybe it's too hard to understand, or, or maybe we understand it just fine, but it's just far too convicting. And so we get caught up and we, we chase after other things in place of God's word, fascinated with our own pleasures and distractions and comforts, and we're lured into thinking those other things are sweeter than God's word. There's an example from my own life. I'm ashamed to to bear it, but here it is. In the morning, often when I wake up to the alarm on my phone, I get up and the first thing is not a yearning for God's word, but wondering, oh, what's in the news? What's on Twitter? What my friends say on Facebook? Oh, they're eating breakfast. <laughs> and I begin to find my phone, the sweetest thing of all. Friends, that's a sickness. And we need to get well in order to delight in God's word as we should. But the good news is this. Not only is God's word the honey, but it's also the medicine. If sin brings death to life and death to joy, we can rejoice because God's word brings life. It brings healing. So the question that I want us to be asking as we approach the text here this morning is this, how does God give life through his word to people who are hopelessly lost in sin and death? And the answer I think that we're going to find here and that I want you to write down, it'll be up on the screen, the big idea of this morning is this, God gives life through his promises so we can obey his precepts. God gives life through his word so we can obey his word. Please join me in Psalm 119 if you're not already there. As you turn to there, let me tell you something that I read this week. is about uh, NASA, our space exploration program. And a panel of NASA in 2014 declared that they were confident that in the next 20 years, they would discover life on another planet. And this confidence in this specific timeline came from some new technologies that they had developed, specifically a, a particular uh, planet-hunting telescope satellite thingy. That's a technical term. It was in the article. You can read it. Not to mention that their annual budget's around $18 billion, and so they feel like they are confident that this is going to happen in what is now the next 15 to 20 years. Now, I'm not against space exploration. I'm a fan of Star Trek, Star Wars, all that. I think space is great. But the irony of the article is this, that we are, in the United States, literally spending billions of dollars every year looking for life out there. And as a society, we do not know how to find life right here on Earth. But the psalmist does. Psalm 119, the author teaches that God's word gives life. And he teaches it through two clear scenarios. The first one is that God's word gives life in the place of worthless things. Please look with me at verses 36 and 37. He writes, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. The first line Shows that the author's desire is that he would lose his focus on himself and turn it towards God's word. That his desire wouldn't be for his needs and his own gain and his pride and his reputation and his priorities and his wealth and his health. Because you see, if if you are the end goal, if you are what you're living for, then you're going to get, grab, make, or take anything that you can because that's how you think life is found. And in the end, it goes nowhere. Proverbs 16.25 says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but it only leads to death. But God's word is here to keep you from that fatal view. In its summary of the clear teaching of scripture, the Westminster Catechism states, Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's far different than the violent, selfish gain that leads only to death. But it's the second line, it's verse 37 that makes our point even clearer. He says that he wants to avoid looking at worthless things. Now when Pastor Ty and I were talking this week about the passage, he said, you know, it's interesting, they they had worthless things back then, they didn't even have TV. (laughs) It's a good point, it got me thinking, what are are the worthless things that they could have had uh, nearly 4,000 years ago? Sheep tipping? I mean, I, you know, I just don't know what David or the other psalm authors were doing to waste their time. But the book of Ecclesiastes, God's word in that shines a light on the vanities, the meaningless endeavors, that which apart from God have no worth. And the list might be surprising to you. Things like wisdom, self-indulgence. Riches, entertainment, work, and honor before men. All of them, some of them good things, but all of them meaningless apart from God. And yet with the advent of TV and our digital always connected age of frivolity and waste, it has only multiplied. Now I don't think we have any new categories that we didn't have back then. But I think the ease and intensity has greatly multiplied. Now, I have another confession to make before you. You've probably heard of these people, but I am one of them. I am a millennial. And uh, I apologize on behalf. I'm actually, I think, one of the oldest millennials you can find. And so maybe I'm not a true millennial, kind of a fringe millennial. But, uh, you know, I got the internet when I was in high school. So I guess that uh, is part of the thing. But for me to to understand this frivolity is, is to ask another millennial just look at the apps on your phone. What are the categories that you have? entertainment, games, shopping, uh, social media, news, and how much time does each of those things take up of your day? How much of it is wasted? There's some recent research that su- suggested that people are tempted to check Facebook every 31 seconds. Now, that doesn't mean they're on Facebook every 31 seconds, but everyone 30 seconds, a thought pops out, hey, I wonder what's happening. Yeah. Uh, no, I'll wait. Uh, nope, I'll wait. Okay, I can wait. Uh, it's been a minute. Okay. And I'm back on. Now, I laughed at the people because those are obviously godless people because I'm only tempted to check my phone every 75 seconds. And uh, so, you know, the holiness is just rising here. I'll just dust that uh, uh, humility off right there. Part of the reason for this temptation toward the worthless things is because we have begun to forget the worthwhile things. And these are the things that God lovingly tells us what matters. And we find this in God's word and it gives us life. The second scenario that the psalmist uh, shows that uh, God's word gives life in the face of affliction. Verse 92 and 93 says, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts for by them you have given me life. Life. In the midst of a difficult life where our author feels trapped and attacked. He recognizes it's the eternal word of God that gives him delights, which sustain him even through the tough times. God's eternal word brings life to him, even when it's hard. God's word is the answer to affliction. God's word is what we need to seek in the midst of persecution and troubling circumstances. And even during when we're feeling the effects of the sickness of our own sin, calling on us to avoid God's word and lose interest in God's word. And we're calling on God not only for temporary rescue, but as our psalmist was seeking here, we we also want the spiritual life flowing from the very heart of God in his spirit, by his word. Because God's word brings life, gives life. You see, in the same way that we can say that food gives us a a sort of life, right? A, A physical life. But we must receive that food, even if it's been given to us, we must receive it by eating. Well, in the same way, we find here in the scriptures, God's word gives life, but it's received through obedience. He is obeying these commands. He is keeping them. And this creates a problem. What if I'm unable to obey? We think of that line of the great hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Well, if access to life in God's word is based on my obedience, what hope do I have to get it? This past Monday, my sons and I got the chance to go with Pastor Ty and others on the South Shores Church annual fishing trip. Now, I'm no great fisherman, but we we had a great time, and I think it must have been pretty funny to watch, because here I have very limited skills in this area, and I'm not just fishing with one pole, which would have been difficult enough, but I'm essentially fishing with two, right? It's got the four-year-old and the five-year-old, and they're bringing me bait, and I'm trying to hook it, and not hook myself, and trying to get it out there and help them reel it in, and it was funny. But we had a good time. We caught about 10 fish. I think we got to bring three of them home. And I only got caught once uh, on my finger right here. And I won't tell you who did that. But you know what? Before I could even go get on the boat, before I could go on this fishing trip, the state of California fishing game said that I had to have something. It was a requirement. It was a license. A license to fish. If prerequisite if I was going to catch anything at all. In the same way, we find in this psalm that there's a prerequisite to obedience, something we need before we can obey God's word and receive the blessing of life that's found within, but it's not a license. You see, God's word requires life. Look at verses 17 and 18. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The the psalmist is describing this prior grace of life that God must give us. And he does it in two ways. First, he says God must deal bountifully with us. That's to say God must pour out his blessings. He must give grace to us. He must impart spiritual life. And then in that new life, obedience can occur. Secondly, he describes it by saying God must open our eyes It's the same, it's a different picture of the same reality. We discover that not only are people dead apart from God's work, needing his vitalizing touch, but they are also blind. And if they cannot see the word, how can they read the word or do the word? The life required by God's word is also a type of sight. Without God opening our eyes, we will never see and we will never do And we will never have the life that we so desperately need. And we see this again in verse 88. It says, in your steadfast love, give me life. That I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. The life required to obey doesn't come from us, but it comes from God. It's grounded in God's faithful, loving character. It's something that we can depend upon. That we can trust in. That God will give the life needed to obey. And so we must trust him. We, we have no other choice. Life is found in no one else. I was thinking of a, a picture of this sort of life-giving from God. There's a series of children books. You've probably have never heard of it called The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. But I've been reading these books to my children lately, and there's a couple of really great pictures of this sort of life-giving idea. You have Aslan, who's the Christ figure in this. And in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he breathes upon the statues. And they come back to become the the people that they were. He breathes, and there's life. Oh, that's a great picture, the life-giving power of God. But in the third book, the book that I'm reading right now with my boys, is called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in this book, there's a character named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and it says, and he almost deserved it, <laughs> the name that is. And this is a, he's a terrible boy who's very full of himself, always being a trouble to everyone else. And at one point, they get on this island, and he find, goes off on his own to avoid work, and he finds treasure. And he's excited about the treasure. And he puts some of the treasure on. And he's like, now I can get this. How can I make sure it's all mine and I don't have to share it with anyone else? And he goes to sleep. And when he wakes up, he thinks there's a dragon behind him. But he is the dragon. And the next few days, we see this uh, humiliating experience as he learns that there is no way that he can change himself back into a boy from being a dragon and he's sorry for all the things that he's done. And he's sorry for the way he's acting. And he's sorry for his dragonish thoughts. And then Aslan comes. But this time, Aslan doesn't just breathe on him in order to change him back into a boy. He claws at him. And he rips off one layer of scales. And it hurts, but it feels good. But then there's another layer. And he rips off that layer of scales. And it hurts, but then it feels good. And that's then there's another layer, and he goes through, I think, four or five different layers of this dragon skin, and finally, the boy emerges, and he has life. I think those are two great pictures of what we see in this life. Sometimes God gives life, and it's just direct, and you continue on. And sometimes it can be painful, but the pain is good because God is still the one imparting the life, and the life is what we need. So I was working with Pastor Dana, who's preaching in San Juan this morning. He said this, and I thought it summed it up well. He said, in order to live the life God commands, I must have the life that God creates. That's an idea that fights against what we're saying in society. I mean, there's countless books and magazines and blog posts and websites that will say, hey, 25 ways to a better life, 10 steps to a new you. And I have some ideas in there that that may be helpful. I mean, working out will make you feel better, but it doesn't work out your problems. Listening to positive music might make you smile, but it can't change who you are. Cutting out negative influences might help you not uh, get angry as often, but it doesn't do anything for the source, the root of your anger. A healthy diet is important. But it does not and cannot prevent the plague of sin from tearing at you and separating you from God. If you want to have life, if you want to have a new you, you must be given life from God. Paul, continuing on in Ephesians 2, says it this way. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. God is the one who changes death to life. It's based in his love and his character. It's by his gift. It's not what we do. God's word requires life and only God can give it. So then if God requires life and only he can give it, what are we left to do? Is there a, a chant we need to do? Is there do we just sit there and just wait for it and hope that it comes to us? If the power to obey God's word this life must come from God, then what am I to do? Well, like a newborn baby who needs food, who's hungry and has no power of its own to get food to it, to to make that life for it. All we are left to do is to cry out. We cry out and we claim the promises because God's word promises life. Look with me at verses 25 through 28. He writes, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the ways of your precepts. And I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Our author feels doomed in his present situation. Powerless to help himself. But who he does help is us. To see our own spiritual predicament. Like him, our soul has nothing to hold on to, nothing that we can engender and create life within ourselves. There's no power for salvation, no tendency towards following God's word as we must. Life, as we have seen, is only from God. And so, what is it in the psalmist that we can imitate? What does he do? He claims the promises of God's word. He asks for the life that God gives, the life that he has promised according to his word, and so should we. We see this again in verse 107. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. He acknowledges there that he is dead if God does not move. Also in verses 154 to 156. I plead, plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Not only does the psalmist claim the promise, he claims the one who makes the promise. He throws himself upon the tender mercies of God. This is the cry of the tax collector in Luke 18. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's the promise of the first beatitude in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is the central good news of Jesus that the entire Bible is pointing towards. To gain the life that we need, we must first admit that we cannot do it, we cannot make it, we cannot earn it, we cannot buy it. Trusting that God freely gives it to those who call on him. A pastor whose commentaries I really enjoy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He uh, talks about the message, this central message of the Bible. He compares it to that of a mountain. He says that uh, there is a mountain that you have to scale. Of heights that you have to climb. And the first thing that you must realize as you look at this mountain is you can't do it. You cannot do it. You're utterly incapable in and of yourself and any attempt of your own to try and climb it with your own strength is only proof positive that you do not understand how high it is. But the reason for this message is not so you won't go over the mountain but rather God's word leads you to seek and to claim the promise of the only one who can get you there. God's word promises life and God always fulfills his promises so our question was this how does God give life through his word to people who are hopelessly lost in sin and the answer that I hope you find is fitting God gives life through his promises so we can obey his precepts and so what is our response in this well I think you'll you'll find it's very natural response we need to claim God's promises So for for the believer, those who are in Christ, the Christian here this morning, I would say to you, plead the promises of God for your joy. The world is fighting to take it away, to infect you and to make you lose your taste for God's sweet word, and you need to fight it. You need to fight it by, as Paul writes in Philippians, work, uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work trusting that God is working in us. We claim the promises trusting that God is keeping them. The psalmist writes in verse 174 and 175, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules Help me. Well, how's God's word going to help you? How are his rules, how are his promises going to aid you in this process? Well, it's because you're going to plead them before him. See, as you read the Bible and you come across the promises of scripture, all that God has to offer out to his children, and particularly what God has or will accomplish for those who are in Christ, plead that promise. Stop reading and immediately turn to God in prayer and take hold of his throne and beg of him to make this true in your life until he does. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, my brother, if you have a divine promise, you need not plead it with an if in it. You may plead with certainty. You know his will. That will is in the promise, plead it. Do not give him rest until he fulfill it. He meant to fulfill it or else he would not have given it. When we understand God's word and we see the promise, we can plead it before our God. It's been compared to a rope that God has given his children. It extends up into the heaven. At the end of that rope there is a big bell. And that bell calls on God to move. And your job, as you read through the scriptures, is to take hold with both hands that rope of promise in God's word. And as you read them, and as you pray them, you ring that bell. You ring that bell with all that you have. What would that look like if we were to do that in Psalm 119 and some of the things we've looked at today? We'd pray this. God, you say that your words are sweet, but they're not sweet to me right now. Make me delight in them. Make them sweet to me. Work in my heart so I delight more in your word than in the words of mankind. Ring the bell. You'd say, God, you say your word will open my eyes to your wonders Open my eyes to your wonders, God. Open my eyes so that I will be more excited about being in awe of you than I will that others might be on me. And you ring the bell. And you go again to God in prayer and you say, God, your word says that you give life to us so that we might obey Give me the strength I need by your spirit. Work in my heart. Change my affection so that I will love and follow your commands. And you ring that bell. Christian, read the word and plead God's promises. But if you're here this morning and and this is not something that you're that into. Christ is not someone who has made an impact in your life. You're not even that sure of who he is. I have a a different word for you. It's not for you to plead God's promises for your joy. No, it's to plead the promise, singular, of God for your life. There's one promise that you need to plead, one promise that you need to claim for your life. And it's all throughout the scriptures, but it's summed up well in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You need to claim Jesus Christ as the promise of God in your life, for he is the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe? Jesus obeyed perfectly in affliction to become the life-giving source of salvation for all who place their faith in him. He earned it for you and for me. And so the time is now, see the mountain, see that you can't climb it, see that you cannot make yourself alive, but see that Jesus is the one who can. He has done it and he will carry you to the other side. Friends, is God's word always sweet, even when we don't feel it? It is, it is, it's sweeter than honey, it's better than chocolate chip cookies, but even more... It's also the medicine that we need to help us taste its good flavor once again. So read the word and claim the promises of the word, trusting that God will give the life you need in order to taste it, to delight in it, and to obey it. God gives life through his promises so we can obey his precepts. Please join me in prayer as I pray through Titus 2, 11 through 14. Father, we thank you. For your grace, that you have brought salvation to your people, train us, Lord, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Lord, we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own. Lord, make us zealous for the good works that you have already prepared for us to walk in, that we might bring you glory and that we might enjoy you forever. In Christ's name we pray, amen.